When the apostles ask our Lord to teach them how to pray, he started with the word Father. In English, we say our Father, but in other languages, the word Father comes first. The very first word our Lord taught them to pray was Father. And he sought them to pray, Thy will be done. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, later on, our Lord himself would pray that prayer, Thy will be done. Not my will, Father, but thy will be done. Now, what does it mean to say, thy will be done? What is, what is the will of God, actually? What does it mean to say the will of God? When we speak of the will of God, we mean that God has the power of loving. Essentially, we're saying that God has the power of loving. We might more properly say God is will or the power of loving. Because God, as infinite and uncreated being, existing of himself, does not have a will or does not have anything other than himself, nothing apart from his being, nothing apart from his own existence. This is a concept we cannot really understand because we as creatures have received everything that we are. We are nothing of ourselves. Our very essence is designed by the mind of God. But then, even if the essence of a human being were thought of by God, that wouldn't make us necessary to exist. We don't necessarily include existence in our very nature. That's something that has to be given to us. The entire human race comes and goes. And so we actually receive everything that we are, including our very existence, or what the philosophers called first act, even the first act, our own existence is something we have to receive. It doesn't come necessarily included with who we are. But in God, it is not so. God is the necessary being. He is everything that God is. And so we creatures have received our existence. Our human nature is determined by God. <coughs> but God could determine human nature without actually creating any one of us, without creating any human being. God gave existence to individual human beings, each and every one of them, us, contingent upon his own will for our very existence. God designed us to be in his image, and so he gave us, he yet as he gave to our human nature the abilities of reasoning and loving, which are acts of the powers of intelligence and will. And thus we have the powers of intelligence and will. We call them faculties. We have those things. But we cannot say that we are the powers of intelligence and will. We are not these things. We have them 
but they are not our very, our very existence. So I cannot say that I am intellect. I cannot say that I am will. I cannot say I am the power of knowing truth. I cannot say I am the power of loving goodness. But in God, it is true. He is intellect and he is will. Not only that, but he is justice and he is mercy. One cannot distinguish his justice and his mercy from himself. It is who he is. It's his very being. God says to us, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are exalted above the earth, so are my ways exalted above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. When we say that God has will, we also attribute to him the power of intellect, knowing truth. But we must say, even though we cannot understand this, that God is intellect and that God is will, and that all that is in God is God himself. It is his very being, the supreme being who created all things. God said to Moses from the fire, the flame of the burning bush, I am who am. I am the one who is. That is the name he gave himself, as it were. When Moses said, who should I tell my people, the Hebrews in bondage in Egypt, who should I tell them is sending me? And God finally gave them the name Yahweh. I am the one who is. Thus God not only has goodness, but he is goodness. He is goodness itself. Not only God has justice and is just, he is justice. God not only has mercy, he is not only merciful, but he is mercy. St. John even says that God not only has love and God not only loves, he says that God is love. And here he uses the word he agape, the Greek for the highest purest form of love, a spiritual love. God is love. That is pure love. Nonetheless, because of the limitations of our creatureliness, while realizing the fact that God is, is all good and goodness itself, and that all that is in God is God, we also recognize our limitations. And so, we speak according to what we know, and we speak according to what we understand. And so we even speak of God in human terms. And we, so we speak of God as having understanding, of having intelligence, of having will, even though technically speaking it is not correct to say so. But that is how we understand. Notice the epistle for a couple of Sundays ago, St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 11. That's the epistle for Trinity Sunday. Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom, and of the knowledge of God. How incomprehensible are his judgments, 
and how unsearchable his ways. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and recompense shall be made him? For of him, and by him, and in him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So all goodness and all holiness are referred to God himself. St. Luke chapter 18, verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why dost thou call me good? None is good but God alone. This simply means that only God is good in himself and of himself. He is goodness. To us, in our minds, this is an abstraction. In God, it is the reality. It is the very reality of God. God has revealed himself to us through prophets, but God has revealed himself to us most perfectly, of course, in our Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Our Lord spoke of God as his Father and the Father who sent him, whose words he speaks and whose will he does, and whose perfect image he is. Our Lord even said at the Last Supper, actually before the Last Supper, he said, He who sees me sees the Father. These words our Lord repeated at the Last Supper. He that seeth me seeth him that sent me. St. John chapter 12, verse 45. And then at the Last Supper, our Lord repeated those words, Jesus saith to him, I believe it was the Apostle Philip, who said to our Lord, Show us the Father. Have I been so long a time with you, and have you not known me? Our Lord said to Philip, He that seeth me seeth the Father also. How sayest thou, Show us the Father? And so our Lord tells us that he is the perfect image of the Father. And all that he does, all that he says, is of the Father. The words of the Father and the actions that the Father has willed for him. Our Lord has taken that as a mission. That is his mission here on earth. God the Son becoming man to fulfill that will, the will of the Father. Now it is true that Jesus taught the apostles, and through them, Jesus our Lord taught us to pray to God as our Father. But Jesus Christ is the perfect image and manifestation of the Father, and is in fact God himself. And this, his relation to God, utterly unique and distinct from our own as mere creatures. We cannot call God Father in the same sense that our Lord Jesus Christ calls God Father. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb and says to her, I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to, to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. So our Lord Jesus Christ, even as man, has a different relationship to God the Father than any one of us here. <coughs> you know, the idea that in God all is God, goodness, justice, truth, love, these are all 
God. They are all divine. They're, they're of the divine being itself. That is something that is incomprehensible to us. Because these things have to be added unto us. These things have to be given to us. We have to receive them from another. And we don't become justice. I cannot say, I am justice. I cannot say, I am goodness. I cannot say, I am love. But all of these things are true of God. Just like the Blessed Trinity itself is a mystery. A mystery that we cannot comprehend. Take any three of us in this room. And one might say, of those three men, they are all human, which means they all have the same human nature. Well, in God, the three divine persons all have the same divine nature. We might say, well, these three men are individual persons. And we say of the Blessed Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three distinct persons. So far, so good. We can follow that. But what I say of the Blessed Trinity, I cannot say of any three individuals here on earth, of anything in this creation. I say of the Blessed Trinity that these three persons in God, distinct, all divine, sharing the same divine nature, are one divine being. Now there my mind stops. How there can be three distinct individual persons who are one being. I don't understand that. I can say that there are three human beings here in this room, but I cannot say these three men are one human being. That doesn't make sense. But it is true of God. And there we find a mystery of the Trinity that our minds cannot penetrate. We shouldn't feel badly about that, though, because even the angels, being only creatures like ourselves, cannot understand this, let alone do this. They cannot understand. They see it in heaven. They wonder at it. They marvel at it because only the divine being of God can do this, can be three distinct persons. And that is by the infinite power of God, his intellect and his will, makes him this blessed trinity of persons. And so our Lord always made the distinction when he told us, when he taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. From that moment on, our Lord always made the distinction between his Father and our Father. They're the same God, but his relation to the Father is very different from yours and mine. He is the only begotten Son of God. None of us is a begotten Son of God. We are adopted by grace but he is begotten. He is of the divine nature itself, and he is God, made man. So the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as God is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the person of the human nature that our Lord, the Son of God, took is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. That is the person of Jesus Christ. It is God who is the person 
of this human nature that he took for himself. And so we can say rightly that God knows. Now God knows what it means to be hungry, physically hungry. God knows what that feels like. God knows what it feels like to have a lash rake one's back. He knows what it feels like to be scourged. God actually knows from personal experience what it means to be mocked, ridiculed, and spat upon. He knows what it means to be crowned with thorns. He knows what that feels like. God knows what it feels like to have spikes driven through one's hands and feet and hung on a cross. And God knows what it feels like to die. God experienced this through the human nature that he took for himself. But the person who experienced all of these things is in fact the Son of God who experienced these things and he knows what this feels like. And when he cried out on the cross, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is though his human feelings, his human sentiments, sentiments, his imagination, his human faculties, the lower faculties of this human nature that our Lord took for himself, experienced, in a sense, the abandonment that a soul feels in hell. And he experienced this by his own choice, precisely so that you and I would never have to experience this, ever. So this is what we see in our Lord, in our Lord's person, through the incarnation. But again, a mystery, a great mystery of faith, which we can't understand, but even the angels cannot understand, how God can become man, how God, infinite and eternal, can become any created nature, which is very finite and certainly not eternal. So the angels in heaven see this and they wonder at it, and it causes them great admiration, but they cannot even understand it, even as we cannot understand it, but we will see it and wonder at it. The power of God alone can do this because he, God alone has the absolute power over every created thing. It is he who created it and he has complete power over it. Could God have taken the nature of an angel? He could have. He certainly could have. He has absolute power over the angelic nature. He created it. So it is entirely within his control. Why would God have taken a, the nature of an angel, though? Would he have taken the nature of an angel to redeem the fallen angels? He could well have done so, and he might well have done so, but for the fact that angels cannot be redeemed. And the angels cannot be redeemed because they cannot repent, and they cannot repent because of the greatness of the angelic intellect which sees the the conclusions and the consequences, even in the very question. An angel sees so clearly the conclusions and the consequences. There is no new information that the angel could have that would change his mind, ever. He knew all 
that would ever influence his decision. And so an angel can never repent of the decision that he makes. In this case, that means the angel cannot be redeemed. So the question of God becoming an angel for the sake of redeeming angels is simply out of the question, simply because of the nature of the angelic mind. Our Lord made it very clear that uh, his relationship to the Father is not exactly ours, but yet our Lord wants us to follow him and his example. Because he wants us to be more than creatures, he wants us to consider ourselves and to be children of God. God wants us to think of him as Father, and he wants us to consider himself, ourselves, as his children. How can that be? So our Lord Jesus Christ beautifully and powerfully stated in the very first words of the gospel, according to St. John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And thus our Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us God who knows and God who loves. So God is revealed as knowing and loving through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to reveal the Father to us. In speaking to us of the great love that unites the Father and the Son in the Blessed Trinity, our Lord there already tells us that God knows and God loves. We read in St. John chapter 14, again, the Sermon on the Mount, rather, I beg your pardon, the discourse of our Lord at the Last Supper. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me commandment, so do I. Now there we find something important for us to know, that there is a connection between love and obedience but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me commandments, so do I. So our Lord Jesus Christ comes to do the will of the Father. <clears throat> Therefore doth the Father love me, our Lord says, because I lay down my life that I might take it again, which is doing the Father's will. What is our Lord? What is the, the purpose for which God the Father sent the Son into the world. That's from St. John chapter 10. And again, St. John chapter 15, As the Father hath loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things which himself doeth, and greater works than these will he show him that you may wonder. See the connection between love and action, love and obedience, love and following the commandments. It is something that is said over and over and over again in the Gospels, the connection between love and following the commandments of God. Especially, we see this in the example of our Lord himself. So now we begin to see 
a matter of the divine will. It tells us about, again, about the divine will. And we find the divine will expressed in our Lord, Jesus Christ. That's where we look to find the meaning of the, the entire idea of the divine will for us. There can be no doubt that God the Father has revealed himself through his own divine Son as both living and loving. And it is to this power of loving that we refer when we speak of the will of God. By the power of the divine will, God has created all things. In the very first chapter of Genesis, again, we read of that creation. And in the book of Judith, chapter 9, O God of the heavens, creator of the waters, and Lord of the whole creation, hear me, a poor wretch, making supplication to thee and presuming of thy mercy. Again, God the creator. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, the very maker thereof, he did not create it in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In Isaiah, chapter 42, Thus saith the Lord God that created the heavens, and stretched them out, that established the earth and the things that spring out of it, that giveth breath to the people upon it, and spirit to them that tread thereon. Can all of these things refer to the creative power of God, willing things into existence and giving life? And we also read in the first chapter of Genesis, to which all of these things have ultimately referred back to that creative moment of God. We read in the first chapter of Genesis that when God created, <clears throat> he created all things good. The book of Genesis tells us that after creating, God would stop to survey his creation and see that it was good and very good. In other words, what God created was in perfect order. And that word is extremely important. That what God created was good because it was in perfect order. What does that mean? It was ordered by God, according to his intelligence, according to his will. He saw it was good because it was all in perfect order. And there we begin to understand a bit about the idea of the will of God and the order that God wills in his creation. God gives order. <clears throat> And sin brought disorder. That's what sin is. Essentially, sin is disorder. It is contrary to the will of God because it is disorder. <clears throat> Something which is nothing, which is a mere negative, is a negation of order. Sin is something negative. It is the lack of some perfection that should be there. And the perfection that should be in creation is order because order corresponds to the divine will. And when there is disorder in creation, it is not corresponding to the divine will. Where the divine will created the goodness of order, human will inflicted the evil of disorder.
How was this even possible? After all, God cannot contradict himself, right? God cannot act contrary to his own nature. That would be disorder. How is it that a creature can contradict God's will? How can there be disorder in creation when there can be no disorder in the creator? Where did this disorder come from? Well, again, we find that in God there is perfect order. In God's creation, he gave order, but we are not order of our very nature. We are created good and therefore limited. Any creature can fail. God cannot, but creatures can, because they are not goodness itself, because it is of our nature that we have all of these things added unto us. We say in the definition of man that we are creatures composed of body and soul. The fact that we're composed tells you right there that of our very nature, we are composed of body and soul. These elements have to be brought together for us to be complete substances, as the philosophers tell us. So that what we have is in us, not necessarily simply by our very nature, that we have the are these perfections, but these have to be given to us. And so if these can be given to us, they can also be separated from us. Human beings can defect. I use the example sometimes of buying a, a new automobile. When you buy a new car, everything works on it. If it doesn't, you take it back to the dealer and you get it fixed. When you buy a new car, you want it to be perfect, but you know that it is going to fail. It is fallible and things will give out on it. No creature is infallible. <clears throat> no creature is indefectible. So whereas God did not create us defective, nonetheless, as creatures, we, we are defectible. And so it is that disorder came into a creation, the creation of a God who is a creator in whom there is a, no disorder and no disorder possible. Now, this is all important because of what's going to be coming here in the future, how we look at this matter of disorder and sinfulness in the world brought by our decision, by our choice. The defect was in us. And so we have to understand what our Lord told us and what the devil has told us and make the distinction between the two to understand where this disorder came from. But we need to understand order as God's will because we have to put our house in order. We have to take his orders. We have to follow God's orders. This is the only way that we can remedy this disorder of sin. So we find that God's will is designed according to the order in the divine mind, but that because of the defection of his creature, man, God allowed this to happen. And so God has not only his designed will, but we say he has his resigned 
will. His will is resigned to that sin and to accept the insult of sin. But God is willing to accept that because he has the power to remedy that and even draw greater good out of it. So we distinguish between God's designed will and God's resigned will that there is no sin in him, but he's willing to tolerate sin in his creatures for the sake of some great good that he wishes to accomplish. This is very important to maintain this distinction and to understand that in God's will there is this. We see it there. It's all part of the divine being, we know. But yet we see that God does tolerate evil in the world. Again, there are great questions surrounding this. St. Augustine looked for a long time for an answer to these very things we're discussing here, the possibility of disorder and evil being in the world created by a God who is all goodness itself and in whom there is no disorder. But we also have to understand the, the fact that in God's will there is order so that we can remedy, we can remedy the disorder in ourselves, to see it as disorder in ourselves, and we have to set about remedying that disorder in ourselves. The question is, how can we do that? Sin is disorder in the human will. That is, it is disorder in loving. The will is made to love. And so, if there is disorder in the will, it means there is disorder, there's disorder in loving, in us, the way we love. For us, sin is actually loving a created good more than the uncreated good. For us, sin is loving the temporal or worldly good more than the eternal heavenly good. For us, sin is loving the limited good more than infinite goodness itself. We choose something inferior and reject not only, we choose something inferior to the exclusion even by sin of what is not only superior and better, but what is infinitely good. It is setting up an idol in my own soul and in the place of God whom I should love not only most of all, not only more than anything else in the world, but I should love God more than everything else in the world. And I should love God with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength is how I should love him. I should love God with all of my will, with all of my powers of loving is how I should love God. And even if I loved God with all of my powers and loving, I still could not even begin to love him as he deserves to be loved because I cannot love infinitely, and he deserves to be loved infinitely, as he is loved within the Blessed Trinity itself infinitely. I cannot do that. <clears throat> now, we say that somebody is in the state of sanctifying grace here on this earth when that person loves God more than any created thing. So I can say this, if I'm in the state of grace, that I love God most. I love him more than anything else. But that's not the same as loving him perfectly. 
That's not the same as loving him with all of my powers of loving. So that I would sacrifice everything of this world for my love of God. There's a distinction between being in the state of grace and being perfect, as you know. Our Lord himself gave us that distinction. When the young man came to him and said, what must I do to have eternal life? Our Lord said, well, follow the commandments, do this and do that and the other thing. And again, our Lord ties that to a love for God, obedience to the commandments. But the young man said to our Lord, but I've kept these commandments from my youth, my my childhood. And our Lord then said, well, if you want to be perfect, then do this. Give up everything. Come follow me. There's a difference between being in the state of grace and being perfect, as there's a difference between loving God more than anything else and loving him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and will. That is perfection. That is what we will need in order to enter heaven. That we must, most of us are going to find that love, are going to be loving God like that only because of purgatory. Because purgatory will purify a love. In order to get to purgatory, we will have to love God more than anything else in the world when we die. Our love for God will have to be above the love of anything else. In other words, we'll love him most of all. In other words, we'll have to be in the state of grace. But that does not prepare us for heaven. That does not give us that perfect love for God that is required in heaven. And purgatory will achieve that, even as it enables us to satisfy for the, for the temporal punishment due to our sins and the damage we've done here on our earth by our negligence, by our bad example, and so on and so forth. But purgatory also purifies our love for God. And when we are there in purgatory, and we have come to the point where we love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength, in other words, when we now finally, finally, finally fulfill the first great commandment, and consequently the second great commandment too, to love our neighbor, then we are actually ready to step into heaven. But when we see what sin is, we see that sin is not loving God perfectly. It is not even loving him more than anything else. Sin is the disorder of loving something more than God and thus setting up a kind of idol in God's place that excludes God, that actually God finds insulting that we love something created more than him. And so sin is the ultimate disorder. It is the ultimate insult to God. And every single one of us here is guilty. Each and every one of us is guilty of this insult to God. We may blame Adam and Eve for original sin, and rightly so. But each and every one of us here has ratified, has seconded, has consented to that sin many times in life. And so we have to accept our own personal responsibility for this massive insult to God. 
And you know, understanding as well as we can that in God, everything is God, that this, the nature of sin is such, this, this nothingness, this negation, which is sin, this disorder that is sin, is such an insult to God, it, it goes right to the heart of who God is. I mean, if someone says that you're unjust or unmerciful or makes an accusation against you, denying you some perfection, <clears throat> you can be offended. <clears throat> but they're not denying that you are a human being, that you don't even have human nature. They may call you inhuman, because you're so cruel or whatever, but they can't take away from you anything that belongs to you by nature. They can't insult you when they say nasty things about you and say, well, you're lying, you're guilty of this, you're guilty of that. Again, they're talking about virtues and vices that are present, but are not who you are. But when we offend God by sin, we are not only saying blasphemies, for example, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, blasphemy is the worst sin, because it denies God a perfection that is true of him, or it attributes to him some fault or failing that is not true of him. Well, why would blasphemy be the greatest of the sins? Because it actually denies God is God. And when we sin, when we sin against God, it's not like, it's not like offending each other by saying nasty things about each other. When we insult each other, we're talking about good things that we can have or not have. They don't change our nature. But when we offend God by sin, we are essentially denying that he is God. We are essentially, when we take away any goodness from God or attribute anything evil to him, when we offend him, when we put something else in his place, in our affections, in our love, in our will, we are actually offending God in such a way that we are denying his divinity, his divine person, his divine nature. We are attacking God as who he is. This is the worst possible insult that we can give to God or anyone. We are attacking him insofar as he is God by sin. Now, how can we repair this insult? How can we realign our wills with God's will? How can we recreate this order, as it were, or restore this order between our wills and God's will? Because it really is a restoration of that order of our will from God's will, to bring our wills back in order again with God's. How can we do this? Well, there are two separate questions here, okay? How can we repair the damage of our sins, the insult that our sins have done. How can we repair that insult to God? That's the first question. 
And secondly, having repaired that insult to God, how can we then set about restoring the order in our souls that brings our souls into alignment with the order that God intended for us? Well, in answer to the first question, we don't have to, we don't have to be the ones to make reparation for the insult to God in the sense that we are capable of doing it ourselves. We can. In fact, <laughs> we do have reparation to make to God. But our reparation that we have to make for the insult that our sin has, has directed against God, basically attacking him in his very divine being, that reparation has been made by the Son of God. He came to earth to take care of that first matter of making that reparation for us. And he wants us to participate in his reparation and to have a share in that reparation. But we could not do it. Only he could do it. So the first of these, the reparation to God for the insult of our sins, already has been accomplished the Son of God became man, and by his obedience, by his love for the Father, he has redeemed us all, and no mere human being could have offered a sacrifice worthy of that reparation, because no mere human being or the entire human race together could not have offered to the Father anything commensurate with the insult on God's own divine being, which is sin. No human being could compensate God for that insult. Only infinite love can compensate an insult to infinite love. And it is God in his own divine being as infinite love that is offended by sin. Only the love of God, therefore, could repair that damage. And this is how God accomplished this, by sending his divine Son here to offer that act of infinite love on the cross to the Father. That has been accomplished. That doesn't absolve us of responsibility of making reparation, of course. But we have to realize that our reparation is of value only because the Son of God has offered himself in reparation for the insult of sin. That is what gives any value to the reparation that you and I can offer God, as little as it is, and as insignificant as it is, especially in light of the gravity of the crime of attacking the very being of God by sin. Now the second question of now that this reparation has made, has been made, and now it has been made possible for us to move on from there, to add the reparation that we can offer. And how then can we realign the human will with the divine will? How can we overcome the disorder in our own souls? This is the message here. And we find this 
we find that this is the challenge, after all, and this is what we're going to be talking about here. But I, I want to, uh, we'll address that in the conferences to come, but I want to mention this, okay? We find that this disorder has come into the world. It has come into the souls of human beings by their choice, their choice of their pride. That, where did it begin? Where did this order begin? It began in the Garden of Eden when Eve listened to the temptation of the serpent to disobey God. And she at first protested, no, God has commanded us not to eat of that fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God has told us that the day we eat of it, we will die. And the serpent said to Eve, this was the first temptation, and this is the very temptation that continues throughout history in each and every one of us, and has been institutionalized in what we know as Gnosticism, the Gnosis, that God knows, the serpent said, God knows that if you defy him, and you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. So here we say, God knows this, that if you eat of the truth, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will know good and evil. You see the word knowledge there, the word know is there. And it's the word gnosis in Greek. You see why we have the K before the end of the word no from the Greek gnosis, gamma, nu, omega, sigma, iota, sigma, gnosis, knowledge. And that is a knowledge that Satan wanted us to have, the sense that we would know that we are God, that we would be our own gods. It's a temptation that we have to face with every single temptation that comes our way, that is at the root of it. How do we, therefore, realign our wills with the divine order to know who we really are in humility, contrary to pride? This disorder in the world now has gotten to this point, where not only do we find this in ourselves, this disorder, not only do we find it in our institutions, we find it in our governments, we find it in our nations, we find it in the church itself. We find it, we find this disorder in the church because of sinners. Of course, our Lord came to call sinners, as you know. But we find this disorder in a special way called modernism. Modernism is a special character of disorder. It is a form of Gnosticism. It is a form of rebellion against God. It is a form of trying to divinize oneself. But we find it in Francis in a spectacular way, because he is the quintessential modernist. You see, when Francis gets up before the world and tells the young people, make a mess of the church, what is he saying? He's saying disorder. He's saying he wants disorder in the church. When he says he wants a dirty church that smells, he's saying he wants disorder. He wants to foment disorder in the church. Francis has even gone so far as to introduce disorder into the Blessed Trinity. The first woman who was given a doctorate from his theological institution down in Argentina, 
had a conversation with Francis, and he told her to follow the Marxist plan of theology. Now, Marxism, he said, Marxism was the thesis, antithesis, uh, and synthesis, okay? We have the dialectic, which I'll explain uh, maybe in one of the future conferences here, the dialectic of conflict. Well, it suffices to say right now that Francis then said, she said jokingly, not necessarily so, that Francis said at that point to her, that even in the Blessed Trinity itself, there is this conflict where the Father and the Son and the Spirit, he says, are all disagreeing and bickering with each other. So he introduces this very idea of disorder into the Blessed Trinity itself. There could not be a blasphemy more disgraceful and more horrible than that. But this is how it is in the mind of Francis, this 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 reverence for, this, this, this penchant for, this devotion to disorder, which has entered the church and uh, be, because of modernism. This is what he wants to do, to have that even consume the church of God. So what are the practical things? Well, if we're going to try to re realign our wills with the will of God, and we're going to try to restore the order in our wills that God has created us for, that God placed there at our creation. There are a couple things we have to keep in mind, okay? In terms of practical matters, day by day by day, that's really what all of this is about. Putting into practice that intention to restore order in the soul, to bring it into alignment with the order of God. One of the first things we have to be able to tell ourselves when things happen to us that are contrary to our wills, when things happen to us that are disagreeable to us, that are offensive to us, that are insulting to us, we have to be able to say these words. My Lord is asking me to do this for him. We have to be able to say that. When there's some task at hand <clears throat> that we are confronted with and asked to accomplish, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, doing the very simple chores of daily life or some extraordinary thing that has arisen that requires our time and attention and we find it very distasteful. We have to be able to think in these terms. My Lord is asking me to do this for him. A very practical thing to think at times like that. We need to train ourselves to think like that. My Lord is asking me to do this for him. And that changes our as the aspect of the whole question. If we put it in those terms, we see it that way, that my Lord is asking me to do this for him. There's something else, too, and that gets back to what I was saying before. If we have some great inconvenience, some trouble, some pain, some sorrow, whatever it might be, 
something that we consider to be an injustice against us, something insulting to us, something offensive to us. <clears throat> we have to be able to think and to say, my Jesus, I have done so much worse to thee. How much worse things have I done to thee? How much worse have I treated thee than what these circumstances are doing, causing me grief, than what these people have said to me, how these people are treating me, whatever it might be, when I'm starting to become angry or dejected and depressed, discouraged, when I'm, whatever it might be, I need to be able to respond with that thought, my Lord Jesus Christ, how much worse have I treated thee? How much more have I done to thee? Just to put in perspective, <clears throat> what we have to suffer <clears throat> and what God had to suffer because of us and for us, for our sakes. These are two things that if we would begin to do them day by day, whatever things would come our way that were troublesome to us, we could see them in a different light and make of them something productive rather than something destructive. It's a matter of taking what happens to us in life and making it productive rather than destructive. And realize that what God is asking of us is this, to bring our rebellious wills into order with his own. And this is the way we do it. <clears throat> this is how we follow the model of the sacred heart of Jesus who manifested his love for the Father by obedience to the commandments of God and enjoins those commandments upon us. So with that, we're going to close now. And we go, and I ask you to stay, go to the chapel and spend a little time meditating here. And then we have the rosary at 1130, and I'll be hearing confessions during the rosary.